Now, grab your Bibles, if you will, and follow with me as I read our text this morning. It's found in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. You follow in that which is inspired, inerrant, infallible, the very mind of God is black words on a white page. Here we go. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for, the, for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. Hey guys, there are two things in this text that I want you to see. Two things in this paragraph that I I want to draw your attention to. One of the things is deeply pastoral. Um, The other is deeply theological. One of the things, it it kind of pulsates out of the text. It's... um, it vibrates. It's very clear to see. At least it is to me. It's the, it's the, <clears throat> it kind of glows out of the text. The other thing that I want you to see is it's, it's going to take some explaining. It's going to take some looking. Uh, you're going to have to stay with me as, we, as I, I, I try to point out something in the text that I think is um, quite a delight. So we're going to start with that one. We're going to start with a thing that's um, harder to see. The, um, the two parts of my sermon simply are the, uh, the pastoral part of the text and the theological part of the text. So let me show you this, this, um, this pastoral part of the text as we begin. First of all, guys, you, you need to notice a couple of things, a couple, a couple of quick things, and you're going to need to have your Bibles open, you know, kind of laying in your lap someplace. Uh, and I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, in verse 1, would you notice the dash, that long dash after the word Gentiles? You see that? And then um, notice this, uh, that the words, for this reason, are repeated. I didn't read this, but there were, there, you find them in verse 1, and then if you'll turn over and look at verse 14, there they are again, for this reason. So the dash and the repeat of the for this reason. That's going to help us understand what's going on here, guys. Uh, let, me, um, let me try to... Oh explain it. Guys, what's taking place in these few verses is that Paul, the apostle, is so 
excited about what he has just written to the Ephesians in chapter 2. Remember in chapter 2, he has announced that Jews and Gentiles are now one in Christ. He's so excited about that that he feels this urge to pray, which he's about to do uh, in just a minute or so. But, but something flashes through his mind, something flashes through his pen. He calls himself in verse 1, a prisoner for Christ. He's writing this from a Roman prison and he calls himself a prisoner for Christ. And, and being this outstanding pastor that Paul is, he thinks to himself, um, wait a minute. Um, th- that news that I'm in Nero's prison might very well upset these people. It might disturb them. They might be very discouraged to hear that I'm a prisoner in a Roman prison. So he interrupts himself to say something that he hopes will help them cope with the whole issue of a Christian and suffering. So what you get in verses 2 through 12 is a digression. A digression on the part of the Apostle Paul that's designed to help people understand this whole idea of a Christian in suffering before he gets to pray. Now, Jimmy, how do you know that? Well, verse 13 tells us, look, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Verse 13 tells you what is in the mind of the Apostle Paul. It tells you what he's thinking as he's writing. And he knows that that suffering, if not rightly understood, can really be hard on the soul. So here's what happens. He is so excited about what happens, what he's just said in chapter 2, he's about to pray. And he writes down, I'm a prisoner for Christ. And he thinks, wait a minute, that might really upset them. Pause, launches into a digression to help explain the whole idea of a Christian and suffering so that they won't lose heart in hearing that Paul is in a prison. Then he returns in verse 14 and says, for this reason, I bow my knee. You see, he was about to do it in verse 1. But he thinks, wait a minute, I need to say something about this suffering business before I... And so these verses of 2 through 12 comprise a digression on the part of the Apostle Paul because he's concerned that people, Christians, who don't think right about periods of suffering could really be overthrown. And so he pauses before he prays. He pauses to give them the big picture, the big picture about what's going on in in the hopes that, that, that they won't lose heart. That's what he says in verse 13, that they won't lose heart over what I am suffering for your sake, says Paul. Guys, uh, some of what he says in these verses 2 to 12 
Um, not only do the Ephesian Christians need to hear them, we need to hear them too. Because suffering throws us all for a loop. Whereas nothing is more inevitable than suffering. Um, It is also true that there is nothing that so frequently perplexes God's people than this whole question of suffering. So let's, let's look at this practical part, excuse me, this, this pastoral part, because Paul is very concerned about those who, who read, who are just now reading for the first time that he's in a prison, that they understand some things, some, some things that will help you and me, uh, when, when it's our turn. So notice first that Paul does not offer one word of complaint. He doesn't say, uh, this is not fair. He doesn't say, why me? He doesn't uh, tell his readers to you know, take the good with the bad or, or to buck up or keep a stiff upper lip or any other nonsense like that. But there's a couple of things that, that, he, that he says in verse 1 that will tell you how he views this whole thing. L- let me show them to you. Look at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ. Paul understands that his present circumstances can be, can be expressed in terms of his relationship to Jesus Christ. Because I belong to Jesus Christ, I am, at this moment, writing to you from a prison. If I were still Saul of Tarsus, I wouldn't be here. But because I belong to Jesus Christ, this is going on in my life. And then he says, secondly, in verse 1, he says, On behalf of you Gentiles. That is, in my efforts to get the gospel to you, this has happened to me. This is done for you, so that you might hear of the the claims of Jesus Christ on your life. Guys, he does the same thing, by the way, in the Philippian church. In the Philippian letter, he says the same things. For the advance of the gospel, I'm a prisoner. Now, guys, here's here's how Paul views his situation. I am suffering because of who I belong to and because of what he has asked me to do in his name. Now, guys, that, that's, that, that is not going to apply to every piece of suffering that we experience. For instance, cancer. But, guys, sitting in a prison, Paul knows, number one, who he is, who he belongs to, and what God has called him to do with his life. And knowing those two pieces of information redeems the suffering that he's experiencing. Knowing a bit about his identity and knowing a bit about his purpose in life helps him cope with this thing that he's experiencing at the present moment. Now, guys, I I realize that none of us are going to get tossed into a prison because we belong to Christ and because we preach in his name, at least not yet. But beyond all that, My brother and sister in Christ, 
Do you believe that you belong to a God who allows suffering, a suffering that is designed to bring about a greater good? Because that's how Paul views it. Because I belong to Jesus Christ and for the sake of you Gentiles, because I belong to a God who allows certain things so that a greater good can be accomplished, I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing. Do you believe in that same God? Do you believe that you belong to a God who allows suffering to find its way into your life, a suffering that is designed to bring about a greater good? Though the details, the details of the the purpose that God has in mind might not always be available. Guys, Can you love and trust in a God who doesn't always explain himself? Let me ask it more simply. Do you believe that there is a good God that is up to something good in your life? Because if you believe that, it will change the way you cope with suffering. Guys, the good that that Paul can comfort himself with is the fact that Gentiles are hearing the gospel and coming to Christ. Maybe that's not the good that God is up to in your life or my life. But the good that the Bible talks about so frequently is a... It it can be likened to the effects of that fire has on gold. That's what the scripture talks about. That the the same thing that fire does to gold is the, the kind of thing that suffering does to the soul. What does fire do to gold? Well, it burns away impurities. It, it makes the gold more beautiful. The same kind of effects that fire has on gold is the kind of effects that suffering has on our souls. It, it, it kind of purges impurity and it kind of it makes us more beautiful. Living a rather um, shallow and superficial and dull life. You know what you need? You need some suffering. You know, for example, guys, over and over and over again, the Bible warns us against the danger of pride, does it not? But it often takes suffering to make that lesson stick, doesn't it? I can hear about the dangers of being high-minded until I'm blue in the face. And then something happens. And all of a sudden, that lesson is learned at a deeper level than I've ever learned it before. 
Guys, if you see yourself as God's, and the God to whom you belong is determined to make you more beautiful, then you are thinking like the Apostle Paul. And and you won't be overthrown by suffering. It'll be hard. It's hard on us all. But overthrown, no. But guys, is it not charming that the Apostle Paul interrupts his whole chain of thinking because he realizes, oh my goodness, people who are who are hearing that I'm in prison, this may really be difficult for them. I need to help explain it to them. That is deeply pastoral. Because he's concerned about the aches and the pains that all of us are going to experience. The the, the hard times that we're all going to go through. And so he, he digresses to give everybody the big picture so that so that it won't be as hard on our souls as it might be. I, I thought that was just precious of the Apostle Paul to, to do that in this before he starts praying. Now, the other thing that I wanted to just say has to do with the, the, the part that I say, say or that I say pulsates from the text. It, it kind of it glows out of this text. It's the, it's the deeply theological part, guys. Now, you're going to need your Bibles for this, and you may need your glasses. But stay with me, because guys, this to me, to to call this, verses 2 through 12, to call them deeply theological is, is an understatement. And allow me to insult the deepness of these verses by trying to tell you what they say in about eight minutes. But here goes. Guys, God has just brought to pass a plan that he has held on to since eternity. Look at verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a purpose according to an eternal purpose that he has now realized. This plan has now been executed by the accomplishments of Jesus Christ, according to verse 11. That great work once accomplished, he then, that is God, then goes out and gets himself a messenger boy. Paul, verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. He has given to Paul this incredible privilege of explaining something that has heretofore not been known. And Paul calls it a mystery. He calls it a mystery in verse 3, in verse 4, in verse, um, in verse 9. He calls it this mystery that has now been made known that God has had since eternity past, that he's now accomplished in Christ Jesus, and he has given to me this marvelous privilege of announcing and proclaiming this, this, this mystery. And here's the mystery, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. That is, both Jews and Gentiles get into the kingdom the same way, by grace through faith alone. 
The gospel is not about meeting some performance standards. The gospel is about performance standards having been met by someone for me, Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 3, this mystery was made known to me by revelation. I, I could have never figured this out myself. I didn't think this up. God had to reveal it to me. In fact, this whole plan and the message of salvation in Christ only and my being made a minister is something that God has done completely by way of a gift. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. God thought up a plan. He executed it in Christ Jesus. He called me, the Apostle Paul, out of my hatred and out of my opposition to this Christ. He revealed to me what he had planned since eternity and what he wanted preached to Gentiles. And then he put together this institution, look at verse 10, known as the church, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He puts together this institution called a church whose job it was to make known the incredible wisdom of God. And every particle of that, from the plan in eternity past, all the way through its execution, all the way to calling me to preach it, all the way to building a church, all of it. Is the result of the gift of his grace. Verse 7 of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least. Guys, here's something you might want to do this afternoon is just go through this text and underline the number of times he says, given, gift, gave, or grace. It's in there like, like nine times. All of it. From eternity past, all the way through the putting on this planet, this institution known as the church. All of it was the gifting of his grace. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is breathtaking. Would, would, would anyone like to debate the sovereignty of God in view of texts like these? From top to bottom, God is in charge of this planning this scheme of redemption, executing it in Christ, getting himself at a preacher for this message, and then building an institution that will disseminate it. All of it. Given. Granted. Gifted. By a sovereign God. Now guys, let me close with four quick applications of all that. Number one. First of all, verse 13, guys, don't forget that Paul is writing all this in verses 2 through 12. He's giving us this rich theological overview in the hopes or th that Christians 
will be will not lose heart and will be better equipped to cope with the discouragements that they face. Here's the point, guys. Paul understands that if we're not going to lose heart, it's going to depend on how we think and what we believe. What we believe, how we think, that will enable us to manage and cope with life. Nothing is more practical than being trained to think right. Guys, yes, I'm in this prison, but I'm in this prison because of this and because of this. Guys, don't lose heart because if this enormous God of ours could bring to pass a plan that he planned in eternity... He executed it in the life of Christ. He called me out of a a life of darkness, built a church to propagate this message. If God has done all of that and done it with such excellence and wisdom, he's certainly a God worth trusting with your life. The thing that Paul is trying to do is is to encourage a group of Christians who are chewing on some tough stuff. And he reminds them. He gives them this overview of all that God has accomplished in the scheme of redemptive history. And then says, now don't lose heart. Guys, nothing is more practical than being trained to think right and to view to, 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 to view life through a lens of God's sovereign control. Secondly, I, I, notice what Paul says about himself in verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, Paul is privileged He is useful like few have ever been. He is prominent. He is elevated. And yet he says, I am the very least. Not least, I'm I'm the very least. Guys, nothing gives me a truer picture of who I am than a grasp of the fact That everything that I am and everything that I possess has been given me. It's all a gift of grace. Grace will do that to you, ladies and gentlemen. It'll humble you. Or at least it should. Nothing humbles like grace. And then the Bible goes on to say... God gives grace to the humble. (laughs) The only people that God can trust to be useful in the kingdom are people who are humble. Nothing is safer for the soul than humility. And grace, rightly understood, will take you there.
Thirdly, and this is the part, ladies and gentlemen, that I could, um, given the right set of circumstances, weep over. Look at verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers of the authorities in the heavenly places. Why does the church exist? So that my kids can play sports? So that I can meet some new friends? So that we can gather with people of similar political views? No, ladies and gentlemen. The church exists so that the world can know something of the manifold wisdom of God. The church is in business so that we can declare the manifold wisdom of God. And when she stops doing that, board it up, You know, ladies and gentlemen, I read in the paper uh, earlier this month um, of an evangelical pastor whose views were outlined in the, in the commercial appeal. Maybe I mentioned this last week. I, I'm just not, I'm, I'm not over it. And this evangelical pastor likened the Bible to another holy book, the Koran. And last I heard, she was not fired. Why is it? Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, why? How can the church of Jesus Christ come to the place where one of its pastors can stand and make a remark in a public newspaper equating the Bible with the Koran? And nobody, nobody, nobody says a word. Guys, what the church is to offer the world is a new way to view life. We we offer a whole new way of making sense out of life. We offer a worldview where God is central, where, where unseen things are are of highest value and where eternity makes sense out of the present moment. And if we aren't offering that, God have mercy on us. Ladies and gentlemen, the 21st century church has lost her way. And verse 10 will tell you 
what that way is supposed to be. Fourth and finally, what turns a hater of Christ into a lover of Christ? According to the Apostle Paul, there's only one answer. And it's in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. What is it, ladies and gentlemen, that turns any hater of Christ into a lover of Christ? It is the effectual working of God's power. Left to himself, Paul would still be a hater. He saw nothing in the gospel that he heard preached by Stephen. He called that blasphemy. And then in a few weeks later, he was a preacher of that same message. What changed him? He had been made by God's power into a new man. Nothing less than that. It was not something that Paul did. It was not something, some five easy steps that he took to become born again. It was all given him by God. Ladies and gentlemen, can you see something of that having taken place in your life? Some working of the power of God to the extent that you're new. Because, ladies and gentlemen, if not, you're not yet new. And I invite you to Christ right now. Our Father, I, I thank you for the, the glory of your word, the richness of its, of its precepts the kindness of a pastor who wanted to make sure that we would be rightly trained to cope with all that life throws us. And, um, and the way that he does it, O oh God, is to remind us of your rich, great, good, sovereign grace. And so, Father, might we leave here with a greater sense of who we are, who we belong to, and why. And what we've been called to do as a church, that you would forgive us if we have become a dog wagged by a tail. Might we be the agency which offers to the world the manifold wisdom of God. Father, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met Jesus Christ, would you, would you draw them now? to a saving knowledge of this great Savior of ours. And we ask it in Jesus' name.